You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. My name is Zeru Fitzsim. For those of you who don't know me, um, the pastoral intern here, the guy who gets to bother Wes every day. Um, By way of introduction, I'll give two words that describe me to y'all. One is a negative word. The positive word that both kind of mean the same thing dependent upon who says it to me. The negative description of me is that I'm obnoxious. I, <laughs> and the positive word that has been used for me like at children's award ceremonies and whatnot is that I'm curious. Do you see how people can use that to mean the same thing? I got the character award of curiosity every year from first grade to sixth grade. And so take that how you will. If you've seen me in relationship, you might see some of that. But that's neither here nor there. That's my way of getting my heart palpitations to decrease a little bit. But, um, <laughs> whew. But, um, yeah, I want to pray for us before we look into this text um, again. Uh, give me a span of 25 minutes to three hours. I'll fit you in between one of those and we'll go from there. All right. All right. Um, Father, we come before you uh, through your son, Jesus's name, through what he's done for us on the cross, for his love for us, for his obedience on our behalf and his sacrifice and his resurrection that we with utter thankfulness and sheer gratitude bring before you our praise. We pray today as we look in the text and look at the life of your servant Anna, that we would be one with you and one like her, so that the world could know your good news in a fresh and hopeful way in, all of, in the midst of all our apparent darkness. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So um, while I was studying for this sermon, I came across this article called like, The Tyranny of Expectations. And one of the things the author was saying was that stopping ourselves from having expectations is what causes us to avoid disappointment, sorrow. Like not having expectations is what you need to do to have freedom. Be mindful, meditate, don't look forward to anything. And um, while that is good advice, it also kind of goes against the grain of what this story is telling us to do. But one of the other things the author says that I thought was interesting was this. He says, expectations are so insidious that you can persist in maintaining them even after you have clear evidence that they are unfounded. It reminds me of the definition of insanity we grew up hearing, right? Uh, You're insane. You know you're insane if you do the same thing over and over again while expecting what the same results. So yeah, I don't, I don't know about you, but like this thought that expectations are just these prophets of disappointment, these oracles of anticlimax, that once you get there, it just brings everything down and crashes down your life. Um, that, that's what happens to me. Like even when expectations have been met, I, I don't now in my life get this bucket full of contentment rushed into me and live a life of constant gratitude enjoy in light of it. I've, I've faced too much disappointment. And it reminded me of the servant, the prophet Anna in this story too. 
as we look at her life and we see where she was, how old she was, and her occupation, we kind of see that she struggled with the same things, but she had a different approach. So in the story, this Anna prophet who has faced many disappointments, but still held on to the insidious belief of looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. We're here to be encouraged by her. Luke's account of Anna shows us that expecting from God doesn't have to be a, this tyrannical thing. It can actually be an insider of joy in our lives. It can be this um, beacon of hope. So let's uh, move on to this first point. We're gonna look at Anna's realization, and it is this. Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. I wanna take a little bit to look at the description of Anna in this book, a little bit at her biography and connect it with what she does. As the text says, she's married for seven years and widowed for 84 years. That's, that's a long time. Um, that's about 91 years of span right there. And to get married, you have to be about 12 at that time. So she's somewhere in between 103 to 105. So yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> and so, but still, as we see in this text, it's not a lot there, but it's still very informative. We see without missing a beat, she committed herself to what? Temple service. It says she's in the temple fasting and praying night and day. We don't know if that she means she lived in the temple, like if she was like a nun in a monastery or whatever you would put, or if she went home and just came back early in the morning. But she's faithfully practicing these disciplines, making known to God her piercing aches, but also her unshakable trust in his promises. As I think about her age, though, and I wonder all that she would have thought, all that she probably would have journaled to God about, it's probably how disconnected she felt to God in those moments, right? Like all of this time fasting and praying, not really getting much out of it, right? Israel at this time is going through and silence from God, and yet she continues. And as the Bible calls her a prophet, I kind of wanted to do this word study and this study of how prophets in the Bible responded to God when they were disappointed by him too. If you look at the record of prophets like Elijah and Jeremiah, we see that in 1 Kings 18, Elijah, he had this great victory on Mount Carmel. He called down fire from heaven and has this like incredible spiritual high. And everyone looks at this man and the God he said is the one true God. And they're like, we must serve him. And then he gets news from Jezebel, one of the queens, and sends her servants after him to kill him. And Elijah gets to a low moment, feeling God's silence and says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am not better than my ancestors. He felt alone and thought he was the only prophet doing what God called him to do. He was let down that Israel had abandoned God, and he felt that God was indifferent to their obedience as well. As we look at Jeremiah, he's discouraged because he was in the temple and he was beaten by a priest. This is a real story. He's in the temple and he gets smacked down by a priest and he says to God, you've tricked me. You've seduced me. What am I doing as your prophet? Am I just here to be set up for a lifelong of ridicule? Is this what serving you looks like? Look at this verse where he says, cursed be the day I was born. 
Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? There's this intense disconnection and silence these prophets felt from God. But in some way, God still met these two men and other prophets throughout the Bible. He sent an angel to Elijah that touched him. He fed him. An angel gave him water and gave him strength for his next venture. Right before Jeremiah laments and cries out to God, Where, why have you forsaken me to just like this foolish task of being a prophet to this people? And he says, but the Lord is with me like a violent warrior. And because God was with these prophets, their eyes and hearts remained upon him even in the midst of their tragic circumstances. And they still did what he commissioned them to do. And back to Anna, we still see that she does the same, though um, very acquaintance with his silence, probably not hearing much in the temple. She goes on with her commissioning. And I believe by looking at this passage, that commissioning, commissioning my bad, was stillness by the same God that met Elijah and Jeremiah in the sadness. She is in the temple and God meets her quite literally there as well. Her, her commissioning is also prophesying. She's proclaiming in the temple, but for about 91 years, she is still waiting for God. She did not leave the temple, serving God day and night with fasting and prayers. Anna was a watchman who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah like he was an unmatched sunrise peeking out of a West Coast sky. She's starving herself of food and offering sacrifices of praise and repentance to God as signs of battered, yet an undeterred anticipation of the Messiah's royal entrance into the world. You see, to be a watchman, to be a waiter, is to be a prophet in its own right. And a prophet knows God's word and his promise will come true like they know the sun will come out tomorrow. The text says Anna's really old at this point, as I mentioned earlier, which is important for a couple of reasons. As she was nearing her departure from life and she stayed in the temple day and night, we find an afflicted widow, all too acquainted with uh, letdowns, still putting her trust in the God she couldn't see, while everything around her that she could see was failing her. And uh, her, her story, if you look in the section before, it overlaps with the religious devout man, Simeon, that uh, Wes preached about a couple weeks ago. Uh, these two, they inherited a religious tradition, right, uh, Judaism, that was really familiar with just God's absence. No prophets at this time for about a span of 400 years were proclaiming that the Messiah would come. There was no expectancy. There was no healing. It was just despair. No one was going to swoop in, right? Um, but she still faithfully waited. She remained still through prayer and fasting. And like Anna, Israel is at this point where her bones are deteriorating. Like her, her sight is starting to get blinded and theirs is as well. And God's promise is being delayed too long for comfort. And I wonder if Anna's contemporaries at this time were kind of just like, you know, God's promises are kind of just all a hoax, you know? Like, maybe this is just a religious custom. All these stories, all these traditions, all these Sabbath dinners reminding us that the Savior would come, that healing would come, that peace would come, 
that no more famine would happen anymore. I, I wonder if they were just like, this is just all a hoax. And yet I still look at Anna and I see her waiting, her fasting and her praying. They did not return void. All of her positions of helplessness, her widowhood, being in a patriarchal system in Israel where women are treated as subhuman, they happened to be noticed by the tender sobs of infant deity in the temple she was at. And it was there she had this realization. Christ is God's Messiah. She didn't easily run into this realization by chance though. She was entrusted by God with encountering Christ. She looked forward to his coming. She didn't get rid of her expectations, even though, as I just mentioned, that expectation for them would have been seemingly tyrannical. And for Anna, as one who groaned and praised, got to see this one she was waiting for. I don't know about y'all, but in your times of darkness, in your times of sorrow and hopelessness, I hope that something you never stop doing is groaning. Like Anna, we see in fasting and praying, it's actually good to let these things out to God. We're not hiding our grief and we're not hiding our pain. We're bringing it to him. But if you're like me, you've probably gotten pretty good at suppressing those groans after a while, thinking they don't help anything, right? I'm, I'm sure everyone can relate, um, believing that all our groans do are becoming these futile attempts at protesting the inevitable. It's all just gonna happen again, so just don't waste energy on making things better, right? Don't waste energy on hoping in God and praying. Perhaps you, like me, rationalize that the best way forward is to respond to evil and shattered hopes by just passively accepting whatever evil comes your way with the pseudo-thankfulness that the damage wasn't worse than it could have been. It could be worse, right? We, we say that so often. But I want to encourage you all to continually, daily remove yourself. It's not actually proving anything to anyone, and it's not fooling God. He wants our groans. In fact, if we don't have these groans, what do we have in our suffering? We're just pretending if we don't bring them before him. I believe that groans are, they are our audacity to believe. They are these remaining shards of hope that we have left, that we bring to God day in and day out, even when it seems like he's not doing anything, even when it seems like he's silent. We believe in our groans that God's Messiah is still on his way to restoring everything and making it right and new, just as Anna believed that. And of course, we still have our questions, right? We, you might feel like your age is slipping away from you and you didn't make that much substantial change in your life, right? Your workplace not, might, might not be the nicest to your ethics or your beliefs. You might feel that joy is just swallowed up by death in this world, like death, physical death, or deaths of moments in your life that you thought you would hold on to forever. Or maybe your doubt in the goodness of God is getting the best of you. And I wanna encourage you guys, with all these heavy questions, we cannot get through them and hope in God without expressing our groans to him. In those, we persevere and we wait for the sun to come up and we insidiously expect 
for the redemption of Jerusalem, for the Christ, the King, to save us. Anna's groans meant a lot because of that baby she met in the temple. His appearance in that temple is God's wink to her that she's seen, her people are seen. God is not untouched by her suffering, that her darkness is being met with this light. And this same Christ who met Anna in the temple is the same Christ who meets us today with hope. For first century Jews, Advent, this time of waiting for God, this time of seeking out and wondering if the Messiah would really come to destroy the remains and remnants of evil, is a time, it is a period of waiting. But it doesn't always have to be just this continual bout with hopelessness because there's joy that peaks in. In, in the story, we see that when Anna encounters Jesus, she has a couple of responses. She came up, she began to thank God and to speak about him, who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And as I, I imagine her seeing her, this baby come in the temple who Simeon was holding, and she sees him and she just knows it's him. The text doesn't give us much uh, room to work with. It just says she, she came up to him and began to thank him. The relief she must have had. I, I, I imagine her saying, sister, brother, friend, the Redeemer's here. No longer should we worry. He's tarried. He's waited for a long time, right? And we know we've gotten through a lot. But he's here and we can rejoice. And like her response, I believe, after the waiting is to witness, I believe that's our call too, which leads me to my second point. We are the Messiah's joyful messengers. In the same way that he came to her in that time and then he went back up to heaven, today we are people who wait for the Messiah to come again. We are in an advent of our own, right? It kind of seems like, dang, Jesus, you couldn't have done it the first time. Like, <laughs> but that's, that's where we are. We are. <laughs> it's real, right? Um, we are people like those in the temple, day and night, littered with discouragement, just in this temple, waiting. We are also in a world, in workplaces, in schools with people who are so discouraged, wondering if Jesus really does change everything. If the, if the religious circles we found ourselves growing up with, the stories we heard were true, uh, we're starting to doubt those things. And on this side of Jesus' coming, right, from the first time, we haven't escaped the oppression that Sarah had in her day. There's so many things that we see. Famine, war, racism, destruction of so many just different people groups. My family's from Ethiopia, and so there's a war going on there that is just breaking our hearts that we're asking God to redeem, that we're just asking him to end it all. And so we still wait. We're still in our own waiting period, but we're also in the witnessing period. I... Uh, I've been to several people here, their houses, and the first thing you'll probably learn about me is that I love stand-up comedy. And <laughs> Tori knows. Like, I, I love stand-up comedy. Laughter has been a 
balm for me, especially the last two years of college. We won't get into that right now. If you want to ask me later, we'll, we'll talk. But the thing about comedy, even though it's meant to make you laugh, it also is just this monologue that is actually just dissecting a lot of depre depressing things. Like you think that comedy is this life-giving thing, but it's a look at the world that you're like, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And one of the things I see comedians harp on about all the time is that Christians do a good job by overlooking suffering because of this second coming they await. They're like, oh, you just pin it all on the uh, coming of Jesus. Therefore, you say, you've got future hope. Therefore, you just got to go through it now. It kind of makes us lazy, right? It kind of makes us avoid what people are going through. It kind of puts us above their grief. And so to them, Christianity has nothing to offer on the ground issues of the world. And something I've noticed, not only from the comedians, but friends of mine, is that they're tired of lofty theologies that just pin everything on the second coming of Jesus. A brilliant author and thinker that I love is named Ta-Nehisi Coates. He writes this, writers who commit themselves to only writing hopeful things are committing themselves to the ahistorical and to the mythical. Another one of my favorites, James Baldwin says this, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that alive and who had ever been alive. Too often, the Christian expression of hope in the second coming of Jesus is a blatant denial of history. And we can't do that because in history, suffering is actually the common denominator. It's, it's not hope. To the world, while that might be a tough pill to swallow, it's at least perceived in reality. Lasting hope doesn't have much historical merit. And so because of this, I'm not going to lie, as a Christian who believes my responsibility is to witness to the world, to share the gospel, proclaim the good news, be a beacon of life, of light, I, I have a complicated relationship with evangelism now because it kind of seems to be this orations of just meaningless future nonsensical fictional things that we usually use as a means of uh, evading responsibility. Sometimes I feel like it would just be best to leave others alone, to not spread what they would see as fictional. And for those of us who believe, it's great, right? I was in Israel a few years ago. They have this thing called in-house evangelism, in-reach. They don't do outreach, they do in-reach. And they, they, they want the people, their ethnic kin, uh, to, to see the religious tradition that they have. And I see that because Anna also did that. She spoke of the redemption of Israel to who? To all those who looked forward. So I'm just like, okay, let's just talk about Jesus to those who are looking forward. But even though as I've wrestled through this, I've concluded that we as Christians, we can't, we, we can't just not witness, no matter how many times I've wanted to. And the reason I've come to this is because in this passage, as we see Jesus in the, temp, in the temple, is that God has not left us alone. I want to encourage you all with that. When you're tempted to leave others alone, remember God hasn't left us alone. Anna, 91 years waiting for the Messiah to come, is finally relieved, gratified that she was seen and that God came to her 
he was with her, and he also became of her by taking on flesh. Jesus is not an advocate of passive waiting. He doesn't just want us to look at people's sufferings and say, oh, I'm coming again. He intentionally gained flesh in order to go through suffering, to show us that our suffering isn't an afterthought to him. And he's proven himself worthy of our trust. And as Christians, we're joyful messengers of his love, this love that gets its knees dirty, a love that gets its pockets empty, a a love that's not worried about its status in light of a neighbor's need. This love that Anna sensed in the temple that caused her to speak to all who were looking forward to Jerusalem is the love of God, a love that actually supports our expectations. It tells us to keep having them. He doesn't think it's foolish for us to look to him for help and to look forward to him delivering us. He cherishes our dependency. And what's so great about God's love is that it instigates our joy and our witness. It compels us to speak that Jesus is for all people, not just the Jews and not just the Gentiles. Christ has come for all. And this isn't a hope that denies history, but it can still burst forward into a world to still know hope. And that's what Advent does. It makes us stare into the darkness and it makes us familiar with despair. And it doesn't allow us to prematurely jump to hope, but hope still remains for us. In Jesus, our future is brighter than our present is dark. And when we witness to others and we proclaim about him, we get people in touch with this bright future, with our thankfulness. It says, Anna came up, began to thank God and to speak. Our witness to the world, it ought to give people this incentive to experience what we have that we can today still imagine Jesus coming in our world, that we can still have this optimism that is not naive, that is still familiar with grief and still look forward to him. And the reason for this hope is that baby in that temple, the one who embodied flesh and took on this greatest form of rejection from his people, an oppression from a Roman state. Christ's coming in the flesh. His being with us is God's way of keeping his promise by entering into the darkness with us and for us, not providing a mere silly solution. He provides a vulnerable body where he dies on the cross. He doesn't just outstretch his hand to lift us out. He he outstretches his body where forgiveness is bought for us, where light is promised, where liberation will be our reality. Peace will be our common experience and love will be our creative and hopeful joy. And then when we get there, we will see that none of our witnessing was useless. We will see that Jesus' death actually did something. We'll see that his resurrection actually was victorious over capital D, death. And so as we see the sorrowful message of Advent, we are brought to a joyous and hopeful Christmas. And we see that light really has peeked out of the dark, proclaiming to one day finally win over death. And it still promises to the cynical of the world today, the embittered, the arrogant, and the faithless. 
we can all rejoice at this proclamation of Anna. Christ is here and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thanking you again for this Jesus, like Anna, just relieved with hope, thankful that we are seen. Help us to feel this, to experience what your coming meant and what your coming again means. May we not be oblivious to the things of the world around us, and may we be just utterly shaken and joyful and rested in the finished work of Christ daily. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We pray that we celebrate it deeply and that we live in such a way that the world is brought in, invited in to experience your joy, your life, and your love. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.